Good morning. I'm, uh, I'm Dwayne McBride, and I'll be working with Gary Hopkins. And uh, we're really talking about resilience and uh, how we can build resilience. And last night we did a little definition. I'll just kind of go over it again to make sure it's kind of on the record. Remember, resilience is the ability to overcome a bad environment. When things would predict that uh, you will not turn out well, and you turn out well, you make good choices. Well, what's involved? You know, it's the idea that the, the, good, the good boy in the bad neighborhood is where the concept really came from. <clears throat> and one of the best predictors of uh, you making bad choices really is the environment that you're in. We talked about, you know, Jesus of Nazareth, and people said, how could anything good come out of Nazareth? So even the Bible, there's a sense that a bad neighborhood produces bad people. So how do we produce good people in bad environments? We also talked about that, you know, one of the reasons that Adventists, um, you all may not know, some of us are old enough to maybe know the history, but Adventists built their institutions far out of the city to kind of remove us from temptation. You know, in fact, there's a phrase um, that uh, it, it, I found uh, in the very, very, my father collected very, very early issues of the review. And we wanted to build our institutions so they were more than one day's round trip walk from the nearest known center of sin. You got that? We wanted to make sure that our young people couldn't walk to town and get back in the same day. And that's, you know, true. From, you know, that's no longer like Loma Linda was 90 miles from LA. La Sierra was 60 miles from LA. Andrews is still <laughs> more than a day's walking back and forth uh, from the nearest town. CUC, Union, they all were set up so you couldn't you know, get there and back in the same day. However, as we also talked about last night, um, cars, internet, and the cities have moved out. There is no good neighborhood anymore because of the internet, because uh, drug use exists in the most rural areas. In fact, methamphetamine is a rural drug use. Um, it is rural areas that make meth. In fact, I live next to a county, uh, Cass County, that is a major meth center within about 20 miles of Andrews. It's actually one of the nation's biggest pig farm areas. Uh, you know, why would you make meth near a pig farm? Because meth stinks and pigs mask the smell. You know, so, it's, it's, so there, there's no safe neighborhood. So that's why resilience is important. Now, last night we went through a couple of things about resilience. We began with the family. And that certainly one of the, the best and most important uh, elements of resilience is the family. If there's bonding, if there's uh, supervision, if there's a connection, uh, role, um, you know, you're, you're doing by example. Um, these are the things that really relate to, to our children doing well. We also talked about if the family is not functioning well, yelling, screaming, abuse, then the, the young person does not turn out well. And, you know, a lot of young people are from very bad families. We also talked, you know, kind of go rapidly through. We also talked, um, you know, that love in the family, warmth in the family. We also talked about how dinners really related and they were important. We talked a bit about self-esteem, the importance that we have as adults, church members, community members, in building up the talents, the spiritual gifts of children so that they do well. Well, we want to now move to, and this is an area Gary will be joining me on soon, is really mentoring. The family really is important, but you know, a lot of about, clearly data suggests that at least in 20% or more of families, there's, there's violence and there's abuse. Children are, 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 are hit, children are neglected, children may be sexually abused. And we've seen many traumatic stories about sexual abuse. Um, there's a major story in the, uh, in the news from Penn State about a guy named Sandusky who abused children. 
Uh, in fact, I don't know if you knew this, but uh, last night he appealed to the judge to allow him to have overnight alone visits with his 11 grandchildren. Yeah, unbelievable. Yeah, unbelievable. The dangers out there for children are enormous. But one of the most protective things, if the family is bad and the neighborhood is bad, is really the issue of mentoring. Now, mentoring is essentially a connection with a responsible adult. It can be parents, teachers, youth leaders. It's strongly related to resilience, to being able to overcome the bad neighborhood, lower risks of risk behavior, high, better choices of health behavior. Gary gave a great story last night. You know, the prediction of this, uh, this, this uh, woman in Africa would have been she would have turned out awful. She'd have turned out a prostitute. She'd have turned out a drug user. She'd be HIV infected. But something made a difference in her life, an adult who cared. Well, you know, connection. Now, the key thing is this word responsible adult. Again, sexual predators are, 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 are not, not common, but they're not uncommon. You know, a proportion of uh, human beings are predators. They look for victims, and they pick on those victims, and they destroy those victims. So in any mentoring program, it's crucial that we have, uh, that we have strong, responsible adults. So connection. How do you make a connection uh, with the youth? Well, Gary, I know you're very active in, the, in your church in Sandusky. Um, <laughs> Sandpoint. I got Sandusky wrong. Sandpoint. Um, yeah, Sandpoint, not Sandusky. That's Ohio. And another problem. All right. How, how can adults connect with kids? Gary, how do they connect? Yeah, it's come up. Yeah. We'll get on this side so we can. Yeah. Yeah, no, but you have to come over here. Let him, let him, let him be able to, to do that. There you go. Hi. There's, a, there's actually an interesting story that was presented at a, a conference on school psychologists in Maine about oh, 10 or 12 years ago about a small town in Idaho, which happens to be where I live, and I don't know where, I don't know where the town was, in which they had problems with kids um, using drugs and dropping out of school and girls getting pregnant and such. And they didn't quite know what to do, and so the town got together and said, what should we do? And they said, well, let's start all the programs. So they paid all the money for the big programs. It didn't work. Had a meeting after two or three years and said, well, what are the results? I said, well, the kids love the program. The problem is that the behavior didn't change. Everything's the same. We spent a lot of money. They're happier, but the behavior is the same. So we said, well, what should we do? And some old guy, probably older than I am now, and I can imagine he drove a pickup truck in cowboy boots because that's what you do in Idaho. And he said, you know, when I was a kid, everybody knew who we were. Let's get to know these kids. Let's learn their names. Just learn their names. All right. The first point, know their names. Know their names. So they started on a project to learn their names. And they had another town meeting, I don't know if it was for that purpose, a couple of years later, and the comment came up, you know, teen pregnancy rates have dropped, arrests for violence have dropped, arrests for alcohol use have dropped, so people learn their names. And, you know, I, I used to do this, I've done this several times, given talks, and I wrote a book that's got that in it. And when um, Nolene Johnson was the head of Children's Ministries in the North American Division, remember she was standing in the lobby at general conference session, um, in St. Louis, and they'd really been pushing this learn their name, learn their name, learn their name stuff. And, I, and Nolan was, was short on words. She's very, she's just very businesslike, you know. And she, she says, Gary, and there's a lot of people that said, yeah, she said, it's working. And then she ran off. And what she was saying was this process of learning the names of kids. Imagine what it would be like if, if imagine what it would be like if when kids came to church, the church was there to meet them and call them by name and talk to them to discover what happened during their week. Imagine how good the kids would feel about coming to church. You know, we're losing most of our kids. 
And I don't see anybody's hands ringing about that. I don't see a lot being written about it. I don't hear, I don't hear much talked about it. And, I, and we've got this process. We have everything that it takes to keep that from happening, yet we don't address it as <coughs> we should. Um, there is nothing, you know, we're, we're, we're big on evangelism and bringing people in from the outside. We're not so good about taking the kids that we've got in this church and keeping them on the inside. And I don't understand that lack of interest, but a lot of that's got to do with the environment that you create. And it's really a mentoring environment. It's, a, it's an environment where when kids show up on Sabbath morning, the church is thrilled to see them, talk to them, engages them, stays with them during the week, calls them up. But some of these kids are going to be from single-parent homes. Some of these kids are going to be from troubled homes. Some of these kids are going to be told they're no good, that they were, un, that, that they were unwanted. And, 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 and those connections that can happen at church are just life-changing, don't they? Yes, they are very life-changing. Well, I think, you know, there's an there's a old TV show, and it was called Cheers. Anyone ever heard of Cheers? All right, what was one of the theme songs of Cheers? Why do you go to Cheers? Everybody knows your name. Okay, that is the theme song, and there's truth to that. You go where everybody knows your name. And that's what we're talking about with church and adult mentoring. Know the names of the young people in our church. Now, there's a couple reasons for that. One is that feeling important, feeling recognized, feeling apart. You know, the other reason is it's also monitoring. Remember we talked about monitoring? Um, you know, one of the ways that kind of adult supervision, adult monitoring, adult mentoring works is if everyone knows your name, you get in less trouble. All right? You know who the kid is when you see him in the neighborhood. So it's part of the monitoring. The second point up there is you can talk, uh, you can talk to adults. Um, you can confide in adults. There's someone that you can talk to. And that's really important. One of the easiest things that, that one of the things that happens to young people is, is you know, what happened to school today? Nothing. Did you learn anything? No. Uh, what'd you? Uh, okay. All right. You've all know that, right? You had 15-year-old kids, right? I have a 13-year-old grandson, a 14-year-old grandson, and, and uh, I pick him up on Thursdays uh, from uh, Ruth Murdoch Elementary to Anderson. Well, how'd it go today? Very fine. Um, what did you focus on? Um, and it's really hard to draw him out. It takes real time and effort because the first few minutes of conversation are shallow, they are quiet, and they are slurred. You know, now, it's a 10-minute drive home. About the time I get home, he actually, I can understand him, and he begins talking. I actually need a half-hour drive, I think. Can you talk to someone about anything? We've talked about time with families and, and emotional bonding. Now, this is more data. And this, again, comes from our 15 years of studying um, Adventist colleges and, and looking at what's protective. And again, this is outcome in the last year. Now, we asked, can you talk to an adult about anything? If you said yes, 29% drank in the last year, no, 40% uh, drank in the last year. Look at this next one. Are there four or more faculty and staff that you can talk to about anything? Again, you know, you almost double the rate of alcohol use uh, if you don't talk to four or more people. You know, in other words, can you talk to a responsible adult about whatever's bothering you in your life? These are college kids. Mom and dad aren't around anymore. And when I do, you know, faculty in-service training at Andrews, I really hit this. I said, you know, one of the best things that you can do to prevent alcohol use, sexual promiscuity, drug use on this campus is talk to your students. You know, don't just say, all right, you don't have time. I'm going to be busy for you. Go. You know, if we stay after class and talk to our students, if they feel comfortable in coming to our office to talk to us, if we just see them in the hallway 
in the lobby, student lounge, if we sit down and talk to them, it's really one of the most protective, protective things that we can do. We don't have to give them lectures of, remember, uh, be a strict vegetarian today. Remember, uh, I don't want to see any caffeine. Um, you know, we don't have to do that. We just have to sit and be able to talk to them about what they want to talk about. Not what we want to talk about, but what they want to talk about. This is really pretty powerful. Again, we're, we find this consistently every study we do. One of the most protective things is, are there a few adults that you can talk to about anything? Again, in college, the parents aren't there. You know, that's post-family. Post so relationships are unbelievably crucial in how we prevent substance use. Now, one of the, in fact, you'll see this. We're going to attach references um, you know, to our presentation that um, will be available somewhere. Um, and Gary led an article that many of us worked with him on that's published in the Medical Journal of Australia on how we prevent high-risk behavior and encourage kids to make healthy choices. School as community is one of the major kind of things that society and our church really find is important. Connections to teacher and school are related to lower risk behaviors, high rates of healthy behaviors. The school is, schools have often been community centers in many parts of, of, of the world. You know, it's the institution where all young people have to go. It's an institution that often is a center of community. If you're from a smaller town, the high school events are community events. Um, you know, I live in a small county in this world, in Berrien County, Michigan. They broadcast local high school uh, football games. Whole community shows up for those games. In the Adventist community, one of the reasons that schools are important to us is, is that um, it becomes the center of our attention uh, as a church. The school becomes our focus. It's where we go for social events. It's where we go for um, you know, connecting with the kids, connecting with each other. It's where programs are often offered from you know, um, spiritual rallies to, to lectures to things to movies we might show. The school is crucial, in, and that's why Adventist churches often will come together to, to have a school. So it often brings two or three churches together who support the school. Here in Orlando, I'm not sure how many Adventist schools there are. Two in Orlando? For a fleece and... Oh, OJA, okay. So there's a couple of schools. That means many churches support them. And so a school is a community center for many churches. So the school and the bonding in school is really crucial. If you have a, you know, remember, if you can talk to a responsible adult about anything, it's very protective. That's why teachers are important. Commitment to school is really important. You know, if you like school, it's actually very protective, you know, liking school. Now, the point two, doing well in school, believing you succeed in school is crucial. You know, I talked a little bit last night about, you know, the, the top ten things teachers never want to say to a student. You know, you're, you're, you're as dumb as your brother. Um, how come you aren't smart like your sister? Terrible things to say. You know, the doing well in school, believing you succeed in school is crucial. That's part of the commitment to the future that, that you have. So doing, you know, that's why things like tutoring and preparation are crucial. You know, if you, you know, one of the biggest predictors of bad choices, from alcohol to drugs to sex, really is having a C or a lower grade. You know, again, we don't do great inflation. You know, that's not how, remember, you don't do self-worth, self-esteem that's fake. You know, school has to be real. The kids have to do well. But tutoring is crucial. Providing the skills that are needed. A student whose English, whose first language may not be English, may need language tutoring. 
um, you know, offering tutoring. One of the things I like about Andrews is we have a student success center in which we offer tutoring. Now, as uh, my father would have said, uh, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. And yeah, that can be a problem. You know, we've offered tutoring and no one shows up. Um, you know, then it becomes very difficult. But anything we can do in class to help the students show up. You know, not, there's an unfortunate system we have at Andrews that's called a flagging system, in which if a student's in trouble, we can push a button and a flag goes to their advisor uh, and to them saying, you're in trouble. You know, that's really impersonal, and that's not how you get them to show up for tutoring. It actually takes a personal contact. You know, you meet with them at class, meet with them after class, invite them to your office. Don't just send a cold email that they're in trouble. You know, and there's <clears throat> one of my colleagues there just does that too much. Now, I have 99.9% .9 of the emails my colleague sends are, you're in trouble, you're about to flunk, you know, get your act together. But periodically, he'll do a, you're wonderful. And I have an honor student advising who's absolutely brilliant. And I got a copy of an email from, uh, to her, and I thought, oh, brother, what happened to her? Well, it turned out is an email saying you're wonderful. But it, you know, I think caused heart palpitations in her, and she got really scared because she thought she flunked something. But it isn't those impersonal in, in, in emails. It's really the connection that we have with our students that tries to help them figure out what's going wrong. Com committing to high level of education occupation is highly protective. In the Monitoring the Future study that I was talking about um, last night, one of our better predictors for less substance use and less delinquency really is, what are you going to be when you grow up? You know, when you finish school, from high school to college, what do you plan to be? If the answer is, I don't know, your rate of alcohol use almost doubles. Um, if, uh, you know, if, if the answer is, I expect to not finish high school, the odds of you being a drug user are phenomenal. No plans, you make destructive choices. If you have no clear goal in mind, you make destructive choices. Pregnancy, alcohol, drugs, delinquency, prison. Commitment to the future is really crucial. Future orientation. That's why when young people are from a high-risk neighborhood, in which they see high school dropout as the norm, in which they see that you know, it doesn't seem to matter, you just get in trouble, if they don't see a way out, then they become a part of that. It's called a self-fulfilling prophecy in psychology. If you've ever heard that phrase, self-fulfilling prophecy is one of the most destructive things young people and adults can get involved in. So it means is, yeah, I'm be pregnant at 14, or everyone else I know is. Uh, guess what happens? You get pregnant at 14. Um, I, you know, know my family's ever finished high school. Guess what happens? You don't finish high school. Self-fulfilling prophecy. Committing to high-level education occupation is highly protective. That's why it's important, you know, as, in, as Sabbath school leaders, as church leaders, that we actually work with young people to think about the future. You know, what are you going to do? What would you like to do? What do you enjoy doing? You know, what do you see yourself as doing? You know, we often in school bring in um, individuals in from different professions and occupations. And that is really being done so that the children begin to see themselves in that occupation. I... Uh, <clears throat> I'm a child of Depression-era parents. Now, all right, so I think one of you may have remembered the Depression. Now, in the Depression, did you throw anything away? Yeah. No, that's, <laughs> that's very true. Uh, my parents went hungry. My parents uh, went through jobs. You'd, in, in fact, one of the unfortunate things, companies would say, oh, you know, we'll pay you next week, keep working. Right, and then they didn't pay you next week, and you worked two weeks without any pay. 
the depression for that generation was an unbelievable experience, and I saw how my parents lived because of that. <clears throat> uh, my parents, and we weren't Mormons, my parents kept two years of food in the basement because they knew what it was to be hungry and have no food to eat. So we had two years of canned goods um, that they kept until they moved to Miami where I had a job at the University of Miami. And so they kept two years of food from my earliest memories in 1950 till they moved from Hinsdale, Illinois in, in, uh, in 1973. They kept those two years of food because of the Depression. Well, the, 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 the commitment to the future um, for them had to be strong in order to survive. They wanted their children to succeed. And from the earliest years, we were encouraged to think of what we want to be. What are we committed to? That you have to think early of your future or you don't have a good future. You know, was it the, if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. So commitment, working with children to see themselves doing something important, to give them early roles as maybe leaders, junior leaders in the church, junior deacons, junior elders, uh, responsible for developing a program. That's how we get them to think of the future. The school is community to many youth. Um, it can be protective or risky. Liking school is actually important. It's one of the hardest things to, to get young people to do is like school. I was a very weird person. I loved school. Uh, I used to sit outside. Um, in, I grew up in Hinsdale, Illinois, and we had two-room two room school, one to four, five to eight. And I used to sit outside the door hoping to be invited in when I was five. But I have other pathologies. That was a major one. But I just, I just want to hang out in school. And so the teacher would usually feel sorry for me, let me in, and I'd sit there and listen. And, uh, you know, when people take reading lessons, you know, they all miss the same word. You would think by the third time the kid would understand what the word was going to be they were going to miss. So I began correcting them. Um, it's a good thing I was the biggest kid in class or I'd been beaten up regularly. But none of the kids I corrected who were in third grade when I was five sent me Christmas cards. So I think there's still some resentment. <laughs> but how do we get our kids to like school? Well, part of it is those success experiences, something they're good at, something they excel at. Uh, we make the school a community center. It's where the church may hold you know, regional rallies. Um, the best teachers, the best principals really are crucial. We often don't see, in the prestige of occupations, teaching isn't one of the best paid. We'll pay $50 million for a basketball player and $30,000 for a school teacher. Something's wrong when a society does that. You know, our president, uh, you know, President Obama's State of the Union address made those kinds of points. What's wrong with society when we're willing to pay $50 million for an athlete and $30,000 for a teacher in a high-risk neighborhood trying to get all these things happening? Commitment to the future, bonding with teachers, bonding with school. Bad priorities, bad priorities. After-school activities. You know what one of the highest-risk times for, for 14, 15-year-olds is? You got it, you know? Uh, what, time, what time does school get out here? Do you know what time? Okay, what time do most parents get home from work? Yeah, they don't get home at 3 o'clock. No, they don't. So the highest risk times for delinquency and teen pregnancy is 3 to 5, 3 to 6. That's when bad things happen. So, you know, after-school activities really are very crucial. And many, and this gets back to school as community. Many, um, you know, many schools have had after-school activities, and, and there's been funding for, uh, for that. Now, we had, uh, we had, um, I'll give you that. We had um, a study from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, a colleague of mine, Kurt Vanderwall, that Gary and I work with, 
And we're looking at differences in risk behaviors in communities that had after school programs with adults involved and without adults involved. Some schools left the gym open that you could shoot baskets, you know, play volleyball, track, you know, you could do stuff. Other schools made sure that there are adults around in for all of those activities. All right, so um, anyway, which communities do you think had the higher rates of teen pregnancy, alcohol, and drugs? The schools that had adults involved with after school activities or schools that just left the school open? Uh, yeah. In fact, if you left the school open without adults, alcohol, drugs, marijuana, and teen pregnancies went up. You know, adults are crucial. Adults play a major role in mentoring and in monitoring and in role playing and in communicating. If we leave a bunch of 14 and 15 year olds alone, good things don't happen, all right? So the communities that had after school programs that had adults, it actually changed policy. Um, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation stopped funding any program that didn't have adults involved. Adults have to be involved in after school activities or it does not uh, work well. Destructive behavior occurs, not positive behavior. All right, Gary, um, you know, one of the areas, we're gonna talk about service, so I want Gary up here, because service is one of the, Gar Gary's a guy who has the most incredible creative ideas that you can imagine. I tend to be an administrative type, I'm half Irish, half German, which means I'm ordered generally, but sure moments of chaos like the Irish. Um, and Gary's someone who can really think out of the box, and Gary, got involved with looking at the meaning of service. I did. Yeah. <laughs> I did. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah, I did. Actually, I've been teaching a class in adolescent health at Loma Linda for 15 or 16 years. And um, it's in the School of Public Health. And I think it was five or six years ago, I was looking at preparing for the class. And I was looking at what are called the best practices for preventing teen pregnancy. And I noticed that, and if you went onto the internet right now and you said best practices teen pregnancy, you would get these 10 things. 10 research-based practices that are found to be effective. And they're the best things you can do. It's the same thing for school violence, the same thing for HIV AIDS. Just do a search on best practices and you'll see where the research guides you. Well, number six on the best practices right. list community service. In other words, when kids take firewood to people who need firewood in the wintertime, they engage in less teen pregnancy. And I kind of scratched my head and I looked at that and I went, what's this all about? Community service, this is crazy. Where did they get this information from? So I started digging through the literature. And one of the things about teaching at a university that's kind of cool is that if you want to learn something, you can assign that topic to your students to write a paper on it. And all of a sudden, you get 20 or 30. I, this last year, I had 44 students, 42, 42 students. You get 42 students writing on the same topic. You could get a whole bunch of information on that topic that you would have Thinking you know, a lot, a, lot of, a long time to explore. So I started about five years ago, and here's what I found out about community service. And it's, uh, that's when kids, when kids engage in helpful activities to other people, there's academic benefits. They get better grades in school. They engage in less, they engage in less the activities um, that have to do with teen pregnancy. They delay sex, they use contraception more. They have higher self-esteem, they become community-oriented for life. It tends to be this civic engagement thing of kids in service is biblical. If you look at Matthew 25 and you see the story of the, goat, of the goats and the sheep, what Christ says is, did you feed me when I was hungry? Did you visit me when I was in prison? Did you clothe me when I was naked? And what he's saying is, is I want you to serve the least of these. I want you to take firewood to people in the wintertime when it's cold. I want you to 
feed people who are hungry. I want you to give clothes, clothing to people who need it. I want you to be of service to people who are less fortunate than you. But what he's not telling us in Matthew 25 is if you'll do it, I have benefits for you. Right. So, so, what, what, so what I started doing with my students is I said, you know, this, I have seen nothing in the literature that says that kids who engage in community service take fewer drugs. And I want to know if that relationship exists or not. So I sent, I mean, I have my kids on a mission. Write me a paper on the relationship between better grades in school and drug use, which exists. And we know that service predicts better grades in school. So we had an indirect way. But I said, I got, got to have stuff. I want to see research-based evidence that says kids who engage in service take fewer drugs. And they can never find one article. I never found one either. He found it in a day. I don't know how he found it in a day, but he did. But it's the only article published that we've ever found. Well, it's coming up. It's coming up. Well, let's let's what you know. I want to hit a couple of things that that uh, that Gary don't go away. That Gary said about Matthew 25. You know, as as Adventists, we're into prophecy, we're into judgment scenes, and we're we're big on on Daniel and Revelation. And for a lot of people, Daniel and Revelation is kind of obtuse, and it's difficult to figure out. But, you know, Matthew 25 is not obtuse. It is not difficult to figure out. There aren't many beasts. Well, there aren't any beasts. But Jesus says, you know, this is how I know who are in my kingdom. You know, what did, you, did you make a difference to others that needed you in the community? And, you know, it, it, it doesn't, um, yeah, and the more, most important thing is, is in, in the people who didn't do those things, um, and the people who did had an interesting response. It says, it, you know, Jesus said, as you've done it to the least of these, you have done it unto me. As you serve the leper, as you serve the person in prison, as you serve the student flunking out of school, you serve me. <laughs> Because the people said, when did we do this to you? Well, you served that person in great need. That was me. And that's, you know, we have the ordinance of humility in the Adventist church. Maybe the ordinance of humility should be, you go tutor a kid flunking out. You take warm clothes to someone who's in prison. You know, the ordinance of humility often is an empty ritual because we've been doing it for over 100 years. So maybe the ordinance of humility is what Jesus did. All right, now one of the, we should probably kind of define what service and service learning is. So Gary, what is community service? Okay, community service is simply the act of going out into the community and doing some activity that's helpful to somebody else. That's community service. Take food to someone, take clothing to someone. Okay, by the way, passing out pamphlets on Sabbath afternoon is not community service. It's not? No, it's okay. not. Okay. That's, that's evangelism. Okay. It's evangelism. Yeah. It's a different deal. You know, and I, I remember once I was uh, where I live up in Idaho, I gave a talk at, uh, at Upper Columbia Academy, and the lady said, well, we're sending kids out to do Bible studies. They said, why don't you get the right leads? Why don't you get the right leads? I mean, like, like Ellen White says in the Ministry of Healing, and, and, uh, and uh, the president of the North American Division talked about it last time, page 143, first Christ went in the community, and he mingled with the people, and he gained their confidence, and he raked their leads. And once he was done, and they had a relationship, <coughs> then he said, follow me. He didn't go in the community and say, hey, follow me. That's what came last. The service came first. He gained trust and confidence first. He helped people first. And he did this on Sabbath, by the way. He did service on. There are seven miracles uh, on the Sabbath that are mentioned in the Bible. Five of those he was criticized for by the Pharisees and Sadducees. None of them were emergencies. All of them could have been done on Tuesday. The, the, the withered hand for 37 years, he fixed it on Sabbath. Could have been done on Wednesday afternoon at 3. But he didn't have those flags, though. It happened when he was there. Yeah, right. that's right. And he did them on Sabbath. And he performed service on Sabbath. 
And that makes people crazy. And it, make, it made the Pharisees and the Sadducees crazy. It makes us crazy today. It's like, why did you do that on the Sabbath? That's work. Well, because he wanted us to do them on Sabbath, I guess. But in any event, we can be kind to people. And we can serve people on Sabbath. It's, it's, it's biblical. But in any event, community service is a little bit, service service learning. Is a little bit different. Service learning is when you hook it to a curriculum in school. Or you could hook it to a curriculum in, in church. So if you sent kids over to my mom's house, my mom's going to be 90, 92 next week. And if you said, um, okay, kids go, to, go see Mrs. Hopkins, and they asked her what, what year she was born, she said 1920. The, and, and they talked to her, and they encouraged her, and they cleaned her windows or something. If they went back to school and they looked up 1920, what kind of cars did people drive, what kind of airplanes were around, who was the president, that's service learning. You actually hook a curriculum to the activity of service. And that's got huge benefit, even yeah. greater than just the community service itself. Well, in, in, in fact, many, this is a real movement in a lot of schools, going even down to elementary. You know, um, young people are often self-centered. You know, what's important to them is the most important thing in the world. And, you know, in many schools, in, including Andrews and in, in, um, in Oakwood and Union, many Adventist schools have, integrate, have done a service learning project. At Andrews, we have a whole semester that you take uh, in philosophy of service, and we require a certain number of hours in the community. And the uh, young people have to keep a diary of their experiences, what they did and how it changed them. Well, college kids often are a bit privileged. You know, they're applying to be physicians and lawyers and nurses and teachers, and you know, that commitment's important. And they often forget the struggles that many people have who dropped out of high school, who have children at 15. And so we have programs in which, you know, they literally do paint houses. They tutor kids on the edge of dropping out. They become big brothers and big sisters to high-risk youth. And to read the notes of those kids, and we actually published this in the Journal of Adventist Education a few years ago. So you could look, look Hopkins and McBride up in Journal of Adventist Education, you'll see our article. The stories they tell are wonderful. It transformed them. They began to see the point that Jesus made, that, you know, by serving others, they're becoming like Christ. By making a difference in the life of others. When you spend a whole semester tutoring a child, you see their grades improve. You see them going from D's to, to B's. And so those young people who spend that semester in community service are transformed. They, they make a commitment to future service, and their grades go up. Well, we'll talk a bit about that. So, all right, here we go, the best, here, here we go, best practice pregnancy. So why, here's some reasons about why um, it, it, uh, it may reduce uh, bad decisions about pregnancy, about uh, sexual activity. So what does service learning do for you? Well, it develops responsibility. These, these kids actually get a sense that they have value. And, some, and, and these kids who were getting the firewood for people in the wintertime, sometimes they never had a sense that they had value. They understand community issues better. They actually get involved. They can even understand politics better. They can yeah. involve civic We've, politics yep. better. There, there's good literature on that. They develop planning skills. They make a difference. They, it reduces their, 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 their destructive sense because they find out that they have value. And for some kids, actually, it's the first time in their life they ever thought that they were worth anything. Because this is just something that anybody can do. Well, they made a difference in a young person's life. They kept them from dropping out of school. Okay. And they also see that consequences, you know, that, that if you do this, then this. That sexual activity, pregnancy. Failing to study for a test, flunking out of school. So they begin to see, you know, critical thinking goes up. Well, one of the things that, that I was really looking for when I was going through this before I taught my class at La Monda a few years ago, and as I'm always looking for these things, of course, is I said kids, one of the questions that we get asked quite a bit or that we see in the news quite a bit is, what does the teen pregnancy prevention look, program look, for, for, look like for a 10-year-old? 
what do you do for a six-year-old? I mean, like, the average age of first sex in America is around 14. The study we did in the Caribbean, 30% of the kids had first sex before the age of 10. So we asked the people, it was on St. Martin, and we asked them, what do you think you should start that? And they said, age five. This is so, what does the teen pregnancy prevention program look like for a five-year-old kid? It, it's not, when you study the way kids think, it's not information. It's not that if you have, you know, this is a five-year-old kid, if you have sex early, you're less likely to finish high school, you're more likely to have more kids, you're less likely to have an enduring relationship, all this kind of stuff. That doesn't make any sense. These kids are concrete thinkers. They're going to go to college because grandma went to college. They're not going to go because they think they need an education. They don't think that way yet. So, so, so our question was, is how do you prevent teen pregnancy in a five-year-old? The answer is getting fired with the winter time. You know what? It's cognitively appropriate. A five-year-old can do it. A two-year-old can do it. And I started thinking when I watched the Sabbath school stories in church and how, how abstract they get. And they tell these complicated doctrinal stories to these little kids who are about two who really only understand Jesus loves you. And you've watched the kids' faces? They disappear. They're gone. And this person's up there telling this complex abstract story <laughs> to these little kids. I don't know who the story's for, but not for the little kids, that's for sure. So that got us into this, in, Duane, I mean, into this mode of what's, what's developmentally appropriate for teen pregnancy or substance use prevention for a five-year-old? And the answer to the question, well, we'll give you this on my substance use, but the answer to the question is getting kids, so here you are getting firewood in the wintertime, or wherever it is you're going to do. And someone says, what are you doing? I say, oh, we're trying to reduce pregnancy rates. <laughs> <laughs> you getting firewood, and someone says, what are you trying to do? What's going on? Oh, we're trying to help the kid do math better. Because guess what? They do math better when they help other people. It's crazy how this stuff is fascinating. This is so <coughs> interesting. We went through the literature of the world. We've really gone through most of what's written in the world on this topic, and maybe all of it. And there's a one name that pops up, and her name is Amanda McBride. And she's no relation to me. Uh, Amanda Moore McBride. And she's at Washington, George Washington University. No, Washington, Washington University, University in St. Louis. And so we got her on the phone. And we said, look, we keep running into your stuff, and we're, we're looking at services that predict substance use. And she says, well, welcome to the crowd. We are now the only three people in the world looking at this topic in research. So what we're giving you, we haven't even published yet. We just actually wrote it up for the... Well, we wrote it for an Australian science of the time. Mm -hmm. But we haven't put it in the scientific literature yet at all. I mean, but we will, and we're working on doing that right now. But the, the stuff isn't even out yet on, on substance. And I'll let you present yeah. that because you've got it up yeah. there. And I, and I it but it's fascinating how this stuff even, even relates to substance use, which isn't even in the literature yet. And Duane will give it right. to you. All right. Well, so, yeah. Yeah. So you look at service and discipline. It, well, no, I mean, in, in, I can think of an unfortunate thing in which when I went to academy, if you uh, did something wrong, they, they'd make you do service. That's not good. You know, that's coerced service. Um, no, that, that's maybe an unfortunate. I still remember, yeah, if, if, um, if you didn't show up for worship, you had to take the garbage cans out at 5 a.m. I remember uh, kids uh, throwing the garbage cans down the stairs uh, in their irritation. That's not what we're talking about. So we need to not use service as discipline, but use service as a positive experience in the community. And all these things the literature suggests work. 
that you know if 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 uh, if a young person's responsible for tutoring, then you know they begin to develop responsibility. If they're a big brother, big sister, they begin to develop responsibility. They learn the problems in the community. They uh, begin to think clearly. They have to plan their next tutoring session. They know they make a difference. They see a kid's grades improve. In narcissism and altruism, you know, one of the <clears throat> most important things that psychologists try and figure out is how do you, um, you know, how do you get young people to think more of others, altruism. In any society, in any community, in any church, altruism is important. That we do things because it's good, not because we get something out of it. Um, <clears throat> disinterested benevolence is an old Adventist term, right? Disinterested benevolence. Right. Well, it kind of means you're doing something good, not expecting anything back. And that's really difficult. We all exist in what's called exchange theory. <clears throat> I do unto others, so they'll do unto me. Isn't that what the golden rule is? Do unto others, so they'll do unto me. No. Um, it's do unto others, you know, is, 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 you know, basically you do to others that which you want done to yourself, but you don't have to expect it be done to yourself. So service really does make a difference. Now, one of the ways that, that we found that service um, relates is it encourages pro-social behavior. That <clears throat> when you do good for others, um, you actually engage in a lot less risk behavior. You start doing other good things. If you're involved in community service, you become, you be engaged in better choices in a whole wide variety of ways, and there's lower rates of drug use, alcohol, tobacco, violence, school behavior, and high-risk sexual activity are all much, are all much lower, are all much lower. So looking at the data, from data we've actually collected in the community and at Adventist schools, those 15 hours of service a month, less alcohol and drugs, um, less tobacco, less gambling, <coughs> less violence, less uh, school behavior problems, truancy, getting kicked out of school, school discipline, and less high-risk sexual activity. What that means is not teen pregnancy ju just, but also um, engaging in sexual activity, the number of sex partners is reduced if young people are involved in, in, um, uh, in service activities. Well, service learning also relates to, to grades. Service learning is associated with clarity of academic goals, goals and commitment. That you begin to see yourself going to college. You begin to see yourself getting a degree. Higher standardized test scores, and we have the literature that's going to be at the end of this, that test scores improve in schools that integrate service learning the curriculum. Cognitive thinking, higher grades. Now, one of the most important things is, you know, you may think this occurs in, uh, in schools in the, in the best neighborhoods, schools with educated rich parents. No. It actually works in alternative schools. Um, if I drive to O'Hare Field in Chicago, between Andrews and, and Chicago, I go by what's called an alternative high school. Y'all know what an alternative high school is? Okay. It's uh, kids who are really in great danger of dropping out. Um, you know, they're 14 and 15, uh, and they've just flunked in school. Alternative high schools are where they try and give them some vocational skills that might keep them employed. It's uh, discipline problems, learning problems. Well, you know, there's research that shows that even in alternative schools, kids do better when they're engaged in community service. So Matthew 25 is a powerful verse. It is not just a judgment scene. It's a change your life scene. It's a public health text, yeah. By, by, by serving others, you know, we not only are citizens of the kingdom, maybe we're citizens of the kingdom because it changed us. It changed us. All right, higher academic performance and risk behavior. 
So, you know, we've, we've learned the, you know, so we, we see all those good things. Now, we did talk about the role of adults in service, and we can't hit that strong enough. Remember the study my, our friend uh, Kurt Vanderwall did, without adults, it gets worse. You don't send 14-year-olds to do service alone. Without adults, it's more risky. Adults involved in service facilitate mentoring. How do we talk to kids? Well, all right, I talked about, you know, my 14-year-old grandson, the 10 minutes I drive him home, and, you know, the first nine and a half minutes, you know, they, um, you know, it's working besides a young person in a service activity that we develop rapport, that they begin to open up, that the conversation comes about. In fact, when I was at the University of Miami, I was involved in a project um, with the Seminole Tribe of Florida. And as you may know, Native American peoples have real problems with alcohol, uh, destruction of their culture, um, even some biological reasons of how alcohol is metabolized, have real problems uh, in, in Native uh, peoples. And um, I was a, a part of funding um, for, from the National Institute of Drug Abuse to the Seminole Tribe of Florida to reduce substance use, alcohol use in the tribe. And um, I was sent in to, to work on an evaluation. Um, and the program often involved the, uh, the, the drug prevention counselors uh, picking cucumbers and herding cattle uh, with, the, with the teenagers. And I thought, that's really it. I mean, what kind of program is that? You know, I mean, I know what alcohol and drug programs are supposed to do. What do you mean picking cucumbers is what you do? I was, that's really dumb. You know, I was about to accuse them of fraud. Well, then, unusual for me, I sat and listened. Um, and, and to the, the leaders in the Seminole tribe about how and what, what, what was going on? How could I tell the federal government using their money wisely when you guys are out there picking cucumbers? Well, this is the point. It's, it's when we're involved in service that mentoring occurs. That's when the adult tribal mem members, by spending these eight hours herding cattle, picking cucumbers with the young people, that's when they could talk to them. That's where they could talk to them about what it was to be a, a, a responsible member of the tribe. That's when they could transmit their history about their tribe, give them a sense of pride in who their people were. I mean, the Seminole Tribe of Florida is the only tribe to never be defeated by the U.S. Army. I don't know, y'all should know that, you're in Florida, right? You know that. Seminole Tribe is very proud. They, they only signed a peace treaty with the, um, with the U.S. government in the 80s. You know, they were never defeated. And that's a sense of pride. Well, working with the young people, this is how they prevent drug use, is picking cucumbers and herding cattle. And it took me quite a few months for, yeah, I get it. It's where you mentor, it's where they get to know you, it's where they learn your values, it's where they learn tribal history, and they learn the importance and status of their tribe. It made a real difference. So the adult mentoring, working with the kids, is one of the best places you can mentor. One of the guys that, that Duane and I work most closely with on this topic, his name is Jonathan Duffy. It's oh, yeah. Adra Australia director. And we've been looking at putting this together in the form of a national study in Fiji. Duane and I were down there. In fact, he just talked to Jonathan on the last phone. Night. Just last night on the phone. He's, he's a wonderful guy. And he's really, really gotten into this resilient stuff and understands it as well as anybody I know. And, and, and that, he knows the literature. He knows the whole thing. He's really good at this stuff. So um, uh, Jonathan came over to America with his Australian accent about five or six years ago, and he decided he wanted to do some work with <coughs> Indians, uh, Native Americans we call them, Indians they call themselves, 
and he was in Oklahoma, and he was interviewing the chief of a, of a I believe it was a Cherokee tribe, and he was asking about community service, and the guy said, you know, we have a, we have a and I didn't know this, Jonathan, and I had to have an Australian teach me this. He, he said, you know, the, the concept of the first kill of a, of a deer, of an elk, of a buffalo, or whatever it was, wasn't what you think it was. It wasn't, it's macho for a youngster to kill an animal. The thrill of the first kill was the ability to meet your family in need. Right. That was the thrill of the kill. And he brought that back to us. And so when we do work with Native Americans, with Indians, we take that back. This is a piece of your culture that you could recreate. This isn't how we could, we're putting our culture into yours. This is how you recreate your own culture. And actually, uh, as I've taught this topic of, uh, of community service, alone throughout the years, I've had kids from just about every religion you can think of in my class, and this fits every religion. Yeah, it does. Every one of them. It crosses culture. This community service concept can be taken to any country and any culture that works. And they buy into it. We were in Tunisia and we presented it just, I don't know, five or six years ago. It was a Muslim culture. Completely bought into it. Oh, we can do that. Well, it's, it's one of the pillars of Islam. Yeah, it is. Yeah, to, to, do good for, <laughs> to do good for others. But these, this is why adults play a role in service. You know, again, it is the best place to mentor is to work with the kids in service. Um, and, and it, you know, again, it's so important that we work with the young people. We don't send them out alone. Remember I talked last night about it's, you know, do what I say, not what I do. Well, you got to do it with the kids. You can't send them out. And it's the best way to get to know the young people in your church and your community is to work with them on these projects. You know, and it took, uh, you know, a young, immature academic at the University of Miami months to understand what tribal leaders in the Seminole tribe are trying to teach me. The best way they can prevent is to work with their kids doing things for the tribe, from the cattle to the cucumbers to everything else that they did. That one of the interesting things that we did in that project, um, we actually got the music department at the University of Miami to record um, the oral traditions of the culture. Because many of the tribal members are very old and their kids on the edge of Miami were not proud of being Native Americans. And so we recorded their traditions and, um, and, and brought the elders of the tribe together to do this from their music, their healing songs, and the oral traditions of the culture. And the Seminole tribe of Florida um, has had some the major positive things have happened. If you've been down there to their cultural center uh, to, off, um, off um, Tamiami Trail, um, it's, 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 they've made a real resurgence. And I think, as Gary said, this has been used with Aboriginal peoples in uh, Australia. It's been used with some First Nations in Canada. It is a pride in the tribe through the service to the tribal members in doing things for other members of the tribe. And it does work from Islam. Now, I was on calls recently with Eastern Europeans, and they're looking at service as a way of, of dealing with the alienation of youth and making a difference in the communities uh, of, the, of the youth at high risk. All right, it's, uh, we've, we've gone 50 minutes. Uh, we're going to take a break before we get into data. Gary and I are academics. We can't talk without numbers. Uh, so we'll talk a little bit more about service, and then we'll go on. So 10-minute break. This media was produced by Audioverse for the NAD Health Summit. If you would like to learn more about the NAD Health Summit, please visit www.nadhealthsummit.com. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.